The reading this afternoon is from John chapter 19, beginning at verse 38. And if you're using the Red Bibles in the seats, it's 1,088. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier, earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Uh, brilliant. Uh, if you've not been with us, um, we've been looking at John um, over about two years, uh, not solidly, um, in and out. Uh, but in verse 38, the first thing we read is, after these things, and particularly if you've not been with us, uh, what things? Um, there's been so much that we've been looking at uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, we're in the darkest period uh, of Jesus' life as he walks uh, towards his own death. John's gospel is written so that we might have life. Uh, and this, this comes at really the, the centerpiece of the whole story. And we've been thinking really about the, the noise and the chaos uh, that's been surrounding Jesus as he walks this path. Uh, there's the noise of the crowds uh, as they call for Barabbas, the murderer, to be freed uh, instead of Jesus. There was a uh, once a year they could release someone and they called for Barabbas instead of Jesus and the crowds shout for it. Uh, the soldiers mock Jesus, they flog him uh, and there's the perpetual cries of crucify him from the crowds. There's the indignation of Pilate who really couldn't care less about the Jews or Jesus. It really has been utter chaos, a swirl of, of darkness. This is all taking place at night. Uh, but our attention, as we've been looking at this, has been on Jesus himself. Uh, around all this chaos, uh, John's portrait has just been magnificent as uh, what seems like powerlessness uh, for Jesus is the reality is he is in total control. Uh, what seems like he is being sentenced and he's the criminal, he's actually the innocent one. Uh, what seems like everyone is on top of him he is actually the king uh, i came across a wonderful little image it's been described as the the most monumental judo flip uh, ever to occur uh, in how using the weight and power of your opponents jesus in the thick of this darkness flips everything over uh, because he is the one who's really in control uh, and although mankind is rejecting Jesus in this moment, uh, for John, we've been thinking about how this is really his moment of inauguration as king. Uh, this is his moment of glory. He has been enthroned as he's been lifted up on the cross. Uh, and he's brought his pronouncement as king and declared at the end uh, in verse 28, 
uh, in fact, sorry, in verse 30, his big king declaration, it is finished. Uh, despite mankind's efforts, uh, the rock of all the ages, uh, the prince of glory, the eternal son, on behalf of the people has been struck. Uh, and out of him has flown life for humanity. Uh, you can see why it's the biggest judo flip ever to occur, isn't it? Um, but as we, as um, Joe finished last week, and as we look, as, as they looked upon the one they have pierced, all this chaos, all this noise, uh, all this darkness really falls down to silence as we think about the burial of Jesus. The crowds are satisfied, Jesus is dead, the job is done, and really everyone goes home, and Jesus is there hanging and will eventually be buried as we'll see. Now we don't often, how many of us really think in any real depth about the hours between Friday and Sunday? Uh, we have a strong tradition, don't we, during Holy Week that we think about Thursday, we think about Friday, and then we think about Sunday. Do we ever really think about the moment in between? Uh, his burial doesn't really receive that much attention. How many sermons really have we heard on uh, the burial? We get lots on the crucifixion, we get lots on the resurrection, but perhaps not many on the burial. Uh, but the burial of Jesus is so important, just as, as important as the death and the resurrection. Uh, you remember, for instance, that when Mary anointed Jesus with expensive perfume a few days earlier, Jesus commended her act and said, she did it for my burial. When Paul summarizes the gospel of first importance to the, to the Corinthians, he says, I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again and on the third day according to the scriptures. Uh, the creeds that the apostles make sure that the burial is in there. Uh, the apostles' creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, uh, died, was crucified, died, and was buried. And it's also there in the, uh, the Nicene Creed as well. So why is the burial so important and what can we learn from it? Well, there's a, there's a few things. Um, there's two things really I've got to say and then a few a few little outworkings. And the first big thing about the burial is that, uh, and this is no surprise, we've been looking at this a lot as we've gone through John, it's in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Um, it's the first big thing, the burial of Christ fulfills prophecy. Um, as Jesus has died, and this is the Friday, uh, it was important to the Jews um, that they get him down before the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath would begin at dark that evening, and once the Sabbath was there, no one could do any work, uh, and they had to bury the body uh, before the Sabbath. It would have been, um, during the festival, the Passover festival, it would have desecrated uh, that day, so it was important that they brought it down. And so, uh, in the story, we read about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who seemed to have been very prepared and ready ahead of time to take Jesus' body down, and we'll come on to them in a minute. Uh, but they place him in a tomb. Uh, it says Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, um, and he was a, a, a rich, wealthy person. He was a, um, a leader and high up in the Jewish authorities. And in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9, it says that he was buried with the rich. 
um, is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus, you might remember, said, you might remember that he said that he was going into the heart of the earth uh, like the sign of Jonah for three days and three nights. Um, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus' burial um, fulfills Old Testament prophecy and the words of Jesus himself that he will be in the heart of the earth. Um, you might have other examples that you can talk about on Tuesday at small groups, uh, but the burial is important because it's a fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Um, but there is something wonderful in this passage that John pulls out for us about how Jesus, again, is showing his identity in how he's buried. Uh, so for the Romans, criminals were executed for decision, um, for sedition. Um, sorry, if criminals were executed for sedition, they would have not been brought down. They would have just left them up on the, the highways. Uh, just imagine Boston Spa Highway with crucified people either side. Uh, and they were left there as an example to, to Roman citizens or to anyone who wants to oppose Caesar. If you oppose Caesar, this is what's going to happen to you. So they would have just left you there in humiliation. Uh, some, and I'm sorry for the details, but would eventually be brought down and just kind of thrown away for wildlife to devour. Um, but for Jesus, something else happens. As I said, Joseph of Arimathea comes along, who we really know very little about. Uh, there's more legend about them than historical fact. If you're into and it's stories of the Holy Grail, he's going to pop up as the one who takes the cup and takes it all over the world or whatever. Uh, but what we do know about him is that he was rich. You find that in Matthew 27. He is from Arimathea. He is a member of the council and the Sanhedrin. He was good and a righteous man. Uh, apparently, he didn't consent to the execution of Jesus, Luke records that, and who secretly, as we find out in our passage, is a disciple of Jesus. It's kind of the first time he's seen, and we don't really see him again, but here he is. Uh, and Joseph comes secretly to Pilate for fear of the Jews, risking an enormous amount, really, uh, bringing in, taking his own position and state, using his own position and status, uh, for permission to Pilate to take down his body. Uh, the Jewish custom is to have the body down before the Sabbath, and so he needs to work fast. And thankfully, Pilate agrees. And if you just look at verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. This was Joseph of Arimathea's. Tomb, perhaps his own personal one and to be cut out in the rock and in the garden it was a prestigious tomb uh, reserved for royalty those in in high honor and Joseph comes and and lays him in this tomb but he isn't alone is he there's Nicodemus who's there as well another high member of the Jewish authorities prominent and wealthy uh, you would have remembered Nicodemus from chapter 3, who comes to Jesus at night, questioning about the kingdom of God. Uh, and as Joseph brings the tomb, Nicodemus brings the spices, which he would have needed several servants probably uh, to carry. He brings myrrh and aloes, and the weight of these two spices is about 75 pounds, which is in a remarkable amount 
of spices, something again reserved for royalty and those in high honour. I'll give you an example. At Herod the Great's death, hundreds of servants apparently are reported bringing heavy amounts of spices to anoint King Herod, uh, Herod the Great. And I don't know who this guy is, but uh, Gamaliel the Elder. Anyone familiar with Gamaliel the Elder? No? Well, anyway, uh, he had 80 pounds of spices burnt at his funeral. Um, I looked up just how much this would have been in today's money, and it rakes into the hundreds of thousands of pounds that they would have spent. Excessive, isn't it? Someone... Uh, reserved for people in high honour and those of, of royalty. Again, as we thought about a couple of weeks ago, this is reminiscent of the excessive and the greater quality of wine, isn't it, that Jesus uh, turned from water into wine at the wedding of Cana. It marks his first kind of public appearance, and here at the close, you have this excessive amount of, of stuff here as a, a sign of, um, of, of royalty that's going on here. But the point, I think, in these, these spices and this unused garden grave is a, is a sign of real royalty. They're showing high honour of Jesus here. Here is no criminal uh, being buried. This is not sedition. He wasn't a blasphemer. Here is the king being buried. This marks a transition from Jesus' humiliation uh, to, the, to the road up to his eventual exaltation. Uh, throughout his life, Jesus was a servant, wasn't he? he? He suffered the most extreme humiliation on the cross. But as he declares it is finished and he's buried, he's laid in a rich man's tomb, honoured as a king. Um, of course, there wasn't the chariots and the crowds looking in. This wasn't Queen Elizabeth's second uh, the second's uh, funeral march where everyone wants to see in there's there's two people here for this king but even so it is no less significant that here is the king of the jews resting in the grave i love how one commentator puts this john employs the tomb of jesus uh, in the resurrection story but before we get there uh, he doesn't record the account of the guards or the seals or the heavy stones rolled in front, this tomb is the resting place for the great king. It's the culmination of his work on the cross. It's the terminus of his journey throughout the hands of Caiaphas and Pilate. The resurrection for John is not a solution to a problem, but another step along the way as Jesus moves from heaven to earth. The tomb thus is not a place of a depressing, exhausted defeat. It, looks, it too looks like the cross. It's a place of glory and victory. Its chambers, unspoiled by secular use, are filled with the fragrance of regal spices as two leading figures of Jerusalem bear Jesus to rest. There is something here for us to consider when we build our Good Friday worship services. See, when we cloak the altar, when we extinguish the candles, and when we leave in silence, are we in fact commemorating the defeats of Jesus, the martyrdom of our Lord? This is not John's understanding. Jesus has finished his work and the hour is nearing its close. I just love how he puts that. 
this is by no means the end of Jesus. The hour is nearing its close. He is just stepping along his way to glory. So we have this royal burial of the Lord Jesus with the prophetic underpinnings showing us his identity. It's marking to us just the steps along the journey that our king is taking in his glory to his glory. It's quite an incredible moment as Jesus is laid to rest. But I don't want to give this a kind of vitriolic view of death. We look at a tomb and think here is victory and glory. I don't want us to have that kind of sense. I'm not trying to be glorious and triumphal about death. I'm not being, trying to be naive about it. Uh, you remember Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, he has nothing but kind of heated, ferocious contempt for death. He, he hates it and he weeps at the loss of his best friend. But as Paul says, I want us to remind us that there is great hope in our grief. And I think the burial here is a great place for us to see that. As we look at the burial of Jesus, there is great hope in our grief. And I just want two things to kind of wrap up uh, today in this passage. The first is um, how the burial of Jesus gives us hope as we deal with death itself. Um, the burial of Jesus gives us great hope as we deal with death itself. And secondly, the burial of Jesus helps us in our own discipleship. Um, it helps us grow in our love uh, for what the Lord Jesus has done and how we can go on in the Christian life. And I'll come on to that in a, in a second. But firstly, how does the burial of Jesus give us hope as we deal with death itself? Uh, you remember the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus has become like us in every way. Um, he is our great high priest who can sympathise with every experience this enables him as Paul says to be the God of all comfort and all comfort in every situation he has most certainly become like us hasn't he the Lord Jesus he's identified with our full human experience uh, he's hungered he's thirsted he's grown tired he's slept he's laughed he's wept. Uh, as I mentioned, um, he stood at the graveside of his best friend and, and wept. But the burial of Jesus shows us that he's not just come here and done the things that we have done, but he's, there isn't a depth he isn't willing to associate us in. There is nothing low enough. He is even willing to, to join us in death itself. This is the God of the universe, willing to go to the lowest places. It's one thing, isn't it, to grieve the loss of others. It's an entirely different thing to walk through it and be willing to go there when you don't really have to. And that's what Jesus was willing to do. Jesus, our King, has been in the grave. He's not just stood at the side, he's stooped into it. And I think this is what Psalm, 70, uh, Psalm 23 can then give us real comfort. Uh, when the psalmist says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, 
they comfort me. Did you hear that? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, even death itself, you are with me. You have been there. Uh, the staff of the shepherds uh, was the sign of authority and, and judgment, really, is what they used to correct and rebuke the sheep to move. And Jesus, the good shepherd, has taken his rod and staff and he has judged death. He has gone to it and he has moved it and he has conquered it. Just listen to how one author puts it. The main reason that the Lord Jesus had to be buried was that we are all to be buried in due time. All but one generation of God's people, the generation alive in the world when the Lord returns, will have gone down after him into the grave. If you think this is of no great importance now, your mind will change in due time. He goes on to say, but isn't it a comfort to know that the Christ has gone there before you? And isn't it a comfort to know that you will come out just as he did? And that what makes the grave for a Christian a place not to be feared. See, the God we have is not a, he's not a coach who stands on the sidelines, who kind of shouts at us to do better. He is the captain of the team on the field and has done everything that is needed to secure our victory. And the promise is, whatever darkest valley we go through, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be a comfort in all circumstances. He is the God of all comforts. Isn't it incredible the depths that Christ was willing to go for us? Even though we walk through the valley of the darkest, sorry, even though we walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. Your rod and, they, and staff, they comfort me. That's a great comfort if we're grieving, that Jesus is there, the powerful king who has gone through it. And for each and every one of us who will go through it, and to, and unless Jesus returns, what a comfort that he will be present every step of the way. There's great hope for us as we look at the burial of Jesus. It helps us deal with our own death. Uh, but secondly and finally, um, there's a spiritual element here to our, to our Christian life. It's not just about getting us ready for physical death, but there's something going on for us now, I think here in the burial of Jesus, to help us with our own walk with the Lord. Um, how does the burial of Jesus help us walk with, with God now? Uh, if you were to flick to the book of Romans, feel free to do so. We're going to go to chapter six. Uh, Paul is tackling a question that if, I have, if, that if we are free from sin, if it's true that it is finished and all our sins, past, present and future, are dealt with, it doesn't really matter if I keep on sinning. Uh, it doesn't really matter how I live. I can do what I like, can't I, Paul? Uh, I don't know how you would answer that question. Uh, but Paul's answer is, well, let me take you to the burial of Jesus. And the point he kind of makes in chapter six is, uh, if you think you can carry on sinning, um, look at the burial of Jesus, and that is where he's taken your sins 
So why would you carry on living in them? That's basically what he says. Uh, Just look at chapter six, verse three. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Verse four, we were, now listen to this, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now look at verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Can you see for the Christian, and Paul's point here, is that the death and resurrection didn't just happen to Jesus 2,000 years ago, but very literally, and I don't think this is an oxymoron, very literally, but spiritually, we were united with him. Look at verse six, we were crucified with him. Look at verse four, we were buried with him. Paul is saying, for those of you who want to kind of carry on in your old life, it's in a grave. It died. And why would you want to go back and live there? This is point. It's a bit like the butterfly uh, who's got, now got wings, who's come out of the cocoon, trying to crawl up the wings, uh, kind of cram up the wings that it's got and trying to place itself back in the cocoon to live. And it's like, why would you restrict yourself? Christ didn't need to be buried. He didn't need to come down and do all this. He was buried so that you could be buried. So that our spiritual old life, our sinful nature could be brought down to nothing. Paul's saying essentially, if you're carrying on in sin or if you think that it doesn't matter what you do, He's saying you've really forgotten who you are and what has happened to you because your old life is in the grave and you've got the spirit of God come down to live in you. And verse seven of chapter six, Romans, for one who has died with Jesus has been set free from sin. That's the reality. You may not feel it, but let me say again, literally, And spiritually speaking, your old life is dead and buried in the tomb. And you now have been raised up with Jesus. And you have ascended with him in the heavenly realms. And you are protected and secure. And you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's where your life really is. And when Christ appears, Colossians chapter three, so you will, in all your kind of butterfly colors, be fully visible for who you really are. When we look at the burial of Jesus, we don't just see hope for the future, we see our sinful old self dead in the grave as Jesus died. Uh, When we talk about baptism, which uh, Paul talks about in that Romans six passage, Uh, This is our public demonstration that this this spiritual reality has happened to us. Uh, Those who've got a wedding ring, think about your wedding ring for a minute. Uh, 
Um, the wedding ring is a symbol, isn't it? It's a picture of the covenant promises that you made to your other half, however many years ago. Uh, it's a symbol that you uh, look someone in the eye, uh, someone you adore and love, and said, look, all that I have, I give to you. And they looked at you and said, all that they are, they're going to give to you, and you are united with them. That's what marriage is. Well, baptism is like a, is a symbol, it's a picture, like the wedding ring of what's happened when Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, came into your life. And Jesus, the, the, the righteous king of all the world, looked at you and said, all that I have, I'm giving to you. My life, my righteousness, everything is now yours. And we looked and said, thank you, and all that I have, I give to you. And he took it into the grave and dealt with it, and we were united with him and raised with him to enjoy everything that he is, is now us. It's a horrible picture, but imagine uh, someone who's married, uh, tempted to commit adultery, uh, and they look at their ring and they think, goodness, no, I pro I'm devoted to someone else. I was promised, I promised myself to someone else. Baptism is that picture. It reminds us, wait, no, I've, I'm, I've, I've died to this way of living now. I now belong to a new person. I belong to the Lord Jesus. And so can you see what Paul's saying? If you've died and if your old life is in the grave, how can you live in it any longer? You belong to someone who's raised you up and who's seated you in the heavenly realms and you are a son or daughter adopted in to the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's who you are. Can you see that we have been buried with him? So when we come across passages like that, this is not just something that happened to Jesus, but very literally and very spiritually, this is something that happened to you. That when Christ called out, it is finished, you were attached to him and your sin was dealt with. And when he was buried in his royal tomb, you were buried too. And when he was raised, you were raised and you are now a child of God. That's what the burial, I think, is all about, or at least in part. I said, we, before we grieve, don't we? As Christians, we grieve over those that we've lost. Uh, we grieve over our sins. Uh, we wish that we didn't think things, do things, say things, don't we? And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. But as Paul says, I don't think we are to grieve like those who have no hope. Because Christ was buried, we've been buried. Our old life has gone. Jesus was buried so that your old life might be buried. And if you're trusting in him, that has happened and all I want to say, if you're, if you're struggling with sin or something in your mind or heart, can I just encourage you to remember your baptism. Remember your covenant promise that you made. Remember when you came to Christ and you said, all that I have, I give to you. Because it was in that moment he took it all to the grave. If you're talking with someone or counseling someone uh, who's struggling, don't give them tips to get better. Or at least don't do that at the start. Just ask them, tell me about your baptism. 
What, can you remember what you said when you got baptized? Because that is true then and it's still true now. That your great king has looked at you and has given you everything that, you, that he is. And the promise is that he will never leave us and that he will never forsake us. And there isn't a dark valley in this world that he won't, with his rod and staff, take you through. That is what our king is like. What a wonderful thing the burial of Jesus teaches us. Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. Let me just finish with the words from one of those commentators. The tomb is not a place of depressing, exhausted defeat. It too, like the cross, is the place of glory and victory. Jesus has finished his work. The hour is nearing its close. And friends, this side of eternity before Jesus comes, that is true for us. It is finished and the hour is nearing its close. He is coming to renew us and make him like himself. Um, I just want us to, to sing. I've got a couple of songs prepared. Um, but why don't we just pray? And if there's anything that struck you, particularly from uh, uh, the reading or anything I said, just, just pray it through, make a note of it. If you want to just pray out loud right now and just thank God for what he's doing and done in your life, let's, let's just celebrate it as a church together. And I'll finish with... Um, just a couple of songs we can sing together.